Well, again, happy Sunday to you. Um, Daryl, the assistant pastor here, uh, thankful to be uh, with you this morning as we have been walking through uh, the book of Genesis, uh, specifically the first uh, 11 verses, or not 11 verses, that would take forever, uh, 11 chapters. Uh, we have looked at, um, we've looked at God's uh, design for creation. We've looked at uh, how he has uh, built a place for uh, Adam to live and Adam to flourish. We looked at how he uh, brought all the animals, how he separated uh, the sky and the sea and the air and the land. Um, and we are kind of moving through at, a, at an intentionally slow pace uh, through these first 11 chapters because uh, what we know is uh, from theologians all throughout history uh, would agree that uh, everything you need to know about the world, about who you are, about who God is can actually be found in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, and so we want to uh, walk through that together and call our attention to uh, what were things like before the fall happened? What were things like kind of uh, immediately after uh, sin entered into the world? Uh, and so last week, Elliot came to us and spoke to us of um, that Adam was, there was one thing that wasn't good, and it's that Adam was alone. Uh, and so God created Eve for him, and, uh, and Elliot talked a lot about loneliness, about finding ourselves in a community. Uh, and then this morning, we get to uh, what Adam and Eve did after they were created, which was join themselves together in marriage. So we're going to look this morning at the account of the first wedding that takes place. Uh, scripture, uh, all, all of Scripture, the Bible, uh, begins uh, with a wedding. We look in Revelation, uh, Scripture ends with a wedding. And so marriage is a big deal uh, to God. And so uh, we want to look at it rightly and see what, uh, what does Moses have for us as he writes uh, kind of for us, but to uh, people who were formerly enslaved in Egypt. And what does he want them to know uh, about God's design and God's intention for marriage? He wants us uh, to see one thing above all else, uh, that marriage is a mission, uh, that God uh, who has called some of his people to partake in this uh, for the purpose of, uh, pr of proclaiming his name across the earth. And because Adam and Eve were joined together in marriage, we too, who uh, decide to engage in this institution, uh, also join in that mission, which is showing a watching world that in Christ, they are fully known and they are fully loved. Uh, that is the mission of marriage. And so we're going to take a look at that. Two things we'll see in this passage. Marriage is loving one another, and marriage is living for others. Uh, so let's dive in here with verses 24 and verses 25 uh, in Genesis chapter 2. So we have two points and two verses. So hopefully you get to Edley's before everybody else does. Uh, so here's, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, I must uh, repent even now uh, of being jaded at such verses, at such statements. Um, Lord, I pray that you would protect my heart from the evil one. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one. Uh, this morning, as we look at uh, what you have for for us, for some of us, uh, the hope that you hold out uh, for our own marriage to you and our own union with you at the end of all things. Uh, Jesus, it's difficult. Um, it's sad. 
it's, it's hard living in a broken world. Uh, so would you call our hearts uh, to the hope uh, that is only found in you? Uh, if you would be so kind to do that, Lord, we would leave here rejoicing for all that you've done. And so in your name we do pray. Amen. So again, as I said, we are looking at uh, Genesis literally means beginning. So we're looking at all the firsts that take place uh, in these first 11 chapters. Uh, and here at the end of, of chapter 2, we see the first wedding and the first marriage. Um, and we look at verse 24. I'll read that for us again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, okay, Moses, thanks. What in the world does that mean? Um, because it's wedding central around here, right? This is Nashville. They love a good wedding in this town. Uh, it's wedding central around here. I love getting to do weddings. I did one two days ago. I'm doing two in the same week next month. I refuse to say no to them, which my wife hates. So stop getting married. Um, and so when we look at, at what this means for God's people, knowing that he has created this institution for some of his people to be a part of, that it's this wonderful and glorious and holy thing that God has created and that he calls people to, to participate in for their good and for his glory. Marriage, scripture wants us to see, is, this, uh, is kind of this place. There's really three major spots uh, that God reveals the mystery of who he is. Uh, we've already looked at two of them. Um, it's creation, right? The, the first thing we looked at when we started this series uh, that God has, we can look at creation and find out who God is. Second, we can look at his community and his church and see who God is. Elliot talked about that last week, being a community of people who love one another and are making sure there are no lonely within their ranks. We see that. And then to even kind of add to that, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and Moses alludes to here in Genesis 2, uh, that marriage is another area in which we can look and see that there is this great mystery that's taking place. Um, the problem is we've idolized marriage to death um, and have actually asked marriage to be something for us, which it was never designed to be. Because here's what Moses wants you to know. God is giving a portrait to a watching world about who God is through marriage, which as soon as that phrase left my mouth is wildly countercultural. Because we want to enter into marriage, we enter into relationships, and we think this, this marriage is about me. And scripture says, nothing could be further from the truth. You're certainly involved in it. It's certainly important to God that you are in that place. But Moses is saying, it's not about us at all. We find the reason why in this verse, Moses says, they shall leave their father and mother and shall cleave together. They shall, as he says here in the ESV, as I just read, hold fast to one another. And in the ESV and in the original language, literally what this means is that they're to be fastened together. Uh, glued together, bonded together. Moses is showing us your life if you're to be married, and honestly, if you're not to be married, it's about this. It's about living in a covenant. The way that uh, mortar lies between bricks and fastens those together, and the reason that marriage is so confusing for us in our modern age is because we have asked marriage to solve something for us that it was never designed to solve. In the same way that you wouldn't use your iPhone as a hammer, if you have an Android, do that. 
But if some of you went to your iPhone as a hammer, marriage in our cultural context, and certainly in a post-90s Christian world, has been wielded and entered into and thought about in a way in which it was never intended to be. Marriage, it's certainly safe to say, has been idolized to death, and we are in love with love. This isn't just unique to the Christian culture, right? We see this kind of all over the place. We're controlled by it. Even the most jaded and the most single among us know that love is what makes the world go round. And here's why that's dangerous. Because here's what you think. If I can just get married, that's gonna fix it. If I can just find someone that makes me feel good. If I can just find someone who loves me as much as I love me, then this whole thing's going to work. I was a youth pastor for far too long. Um, and I was meeting with this kid. He had just started dating this girl. They're pretty, they're pretty hot and heavy, as the kids say. And um, he was like, man, I think I'm going to marry her. I'm like, you're 15. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't wake up on time. But yeah, I let it ride out. I was like, let's see where this goes. And he's like, man, I just can't. I'd been married for like a year, so I didn't know a lot. I've been married five years, I still don't know anything. But he had said, he goes, man, if it's as good as dating is, then it's going to be awesome. And I was like, okay, man, Shepherd, tell me some more about this. And he's like, dude, we were making out in the Cool Springs Mall parking lot till 2 a.m. <laughs> and it was awesome. And that's what marriage is going to be. And I said, let me tell you something, Shepherd. You know what married people don't do? Make out in a car. <laughs> like, one, logistically it's a nightmare. Two, it doesn't make sense. Like, what you have, Shepard, what you're looking for, what you're wanting, is someone who feels about you the way that you feel about you. The reaction that you had to her is not love. The reaction you had to her, as C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters, is hunger. You hunger for someone to feel about you the way, that she, the way that you feel about you. And she just was that for you. They broke up like two weeks later. <laughs> and so we look at marriage to, he was looking, we look at marriage to do something for us that it was never intended to do. And Moses says here, you have to fasten yourself to one another. But to fasten yourself to one another, it means this, there has to be a bonding agent. Like I said, like mortar between bricks, like peanut butter between bread. There has to be something that's gonna hold you together and it has to come from outside of you. It has to come from you saying, I love that person even when they drive me nuts. And that person saying to you, I will love you even when you drive me bananas. That is what holds it together. That's what my boy Shepard didn't understand. Uh, during a marriage crisis intervention at a previous church where I worked, this, this wedding had blown up. It was far over my head. We had to call in somebody to like kind of talk to him. And uh, I'll call him Todd. I don't know if that was his real name. You don't either. And so um, we're talking to them and we're kind of asking like, what happened? Like, where did it go wrong? It wasn't just that he found an old flame on Facebook and kind of took off after that. I was like, there had to be something before that. So like, Help me figure this out, counselor. That's what we paid you a lot of money for. Um, and he said this, there are two people in this world that love Todd. Marianne loves Todd and Todd loves Todd. There are two people in this world that love Todd more than anything, his wife and himself. Moses is saying, 
if your marriage is to last, if it's to make it out of the starting gate, if you were to be, if you were to even have a chance past your honeymoon week, it has to be bound by something more powerful than our feelings for one another and our love for the same restaurants or our love for the same movies because all those things will change. You can ask any married person in here, your tastes change. Instead, it has to be built, fastened and glued together by something that will never change. This is why we call marriage a covenant. It's the covenant that you make with one another that supports your love and never the other way around. But boy, oh boy, we want to make it the other way around. I love them so much, I'm going to make a promise to them. I'll never let them down. Until you do. And then what happens, right? What we have to look at is to say it's covenants that make the world go round, not love. That we have bound ourselves together in a covenant. That covenant theology is the method of theology we ascribe to here at Midtown. It's the biblical understanding that God works through promises that he makes. Chief among them, the overarching covenant in scripture is I will be their God and they will be my people. Meaning it doesn't wax or it doesn't wane on our ability to follow through, but on the promise that God makes. And when you enter into marriage with one another, whether it takes two days, two weeks, two months, or two years, hear this if you're single or you're married. There's going to come a day that you're going to wake up one morning and you're not going to like that person very much. Hopefully it just lasts for like a little bit. They leave their socks on the floor, leave the toilet seat up, don't take the trash out. This isn't therapy, Daryl. Don't talk about your marriage. That there's going to come a morning where you will wake up and not like that person very much. And that's when Satan's going to come in and say, get out. Just get out. Numb yourself on your phone. Go look at porn. Go, go talk to that work spouse that you have that makes life feel so much better. Go do all those things. And God is saying, no. Stay and remember the promises that you made to one another. Because even in the best marriages, you have to constantly be looking back at the promises you made to one another and say, come hell or high water, I will be here. And it's not rote sentimentality uh, when couples make those promises to each other like we see at weddings. It's a binding contract they're making to one another. But it's so much more than a legal document. And it's so much more than an emotional moment. But Moses says that covenant has to be there to fasten you together. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. This is why dating is the worst. This is why cohabitating is not good. Because you live every moment in fear that that person's going to leave you. Maybe not anxious, anxiety, chewing your fingernails, fear. But there's a thought in the back of your head that this person could bounce at any moment. You want to know why? Because people break up all the time. I got an empty box of Kleenexes in my office that can prove that point to you. People break up all the time. Because there's no promise that's holding you together. So when we look at marriage and we say this is what this covenant does, we can look back and say, I know right now things are tough and things are hard and you're a bonehead. But I said I'd love you and I'm going to do it. People were watching. God was there. There was a pastor there. We sat in front of all these people. We threw this awesome dance party afterwards. We look back at that day and say, on this day, I pledge to you that I will stay and I'm going to stay. You don't have that in dating. That's why it's hard. In cohabitating, you have sex that kind of holds you together. But once that runs its course, 
what keeps the person there. There's no promises that they're making to stay together. Moses says, if you're going to enter into this covenant, this is why we hold it so solemnly. And why we hold it in such high regard is because it has to be fastened around something that's outside of you. Moses tells us it can't be based on how we love one another. It can't just be based on our feelings together. It has to be based on this promise that we make together because we know that our feelings wax and our feelings wane. And he's telling this to Adam and Eve, or he's telling this about Adam and Eve who had the luxury of not living in a sinful world. They had never sinned before, but as he's speaking this message, he's saying it to folks who uh, were caught up in a sinful world. And then he drops this bomb on us. He says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What in heaven's name are you talking about, Moses? Because we can't imagine a world like that. This is our second point and our last point. Uh, If marriage is living for others, Moses says to close out this chapter in Genesis, that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. Y'all, sin's about to come in. This ends chapter two, sin enters the Bible in chapter three. This is the last sentence written in a perfect world. That's why it's in there. Because all of us, myself chief among you, are wrecked by shame. They're wrecked by shame. And Moses is saying, this couple was naked and they were not ashamed. Now modern marriage has turned this into a verse about how great sex is. That's gonna be this wild sex romp all the time. You'll be married five minutes and figure out that's a lie because it can't sustain anything. And Moses is saying it's so much more than that. And then Paul comes in in Ephesians 5 and he tells us uh, that what every person with a heartbeat knows is that it's virtually impossible to imagine a life where we can live without shame. Because Adam and Eve had the benefit of living in a world that it wasn't there yet. They had the benefit of living in a world where kids didn't drive them nuts and that traffic didn't exist and that their work wasn't terrible. And so it's easy to get jaded about this verse unless we look to the book of Ephesians where the apostle Paul offers a commentary on what Moses meant here. And he says this, the man and the woman shall leave one another and cleave, or not leave one another, leave their parents uh, and cleave to one another. And he says, this mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and his church. When we tell you that your marriage is not about you, this is what we mean. When we tell you that your marriage is a portrait and a snapshot and a lens into the mystery of just how Jesus feels about his church and how Jesus feels about his church is this, he loved her to death and he kept his promise that he would love her to death. Literally, it killed him. You wanna know why they can stand naked and not ashamed? Because in a perfect world, spouses don't shame one another. We don't live in a perfect world. We shame our spouses all the time. What Moses is saying, what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying to you is don't run to your shame and then toss that shame on someone else. Remember that I'm the one who has come to take shame from you. Remember that I am building a world where shame is being taken away more and more and more until the day of my return. And so in the modern culture in which we find ourselves and which we know when we look around that shaming someone is just easier. 
It's just easier to shame someone because we don't have to deal with our own stuff. Jesus is saying to you, run away from that as fast as you can. Remember the promises that you made to one another for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. That's why we don't let you write your own vows because you can't write them better than the one who made them up. For richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, all these things that you've promised to one another, nowhere in there does it say, unless you do this. Right? In our marriage vows that we make to one another, we don't say, I will love you till death do us part unless you have a video game addiction. I will love you until death do us part unless you leave the toilet seat up. I will love you until death do us part until I find somebody else that I like more. Jesus is saying, run, 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 run from the desire to shame your spouse because we have a spouse in Jesus who has never shamed us. Y'all, Jesus got the short end of that stick. He married us. We're the worst bride possible. And Jesus is saying, still, I have come for you. Still, I am binding you to myself. Because here's what we find. Even in a world in which you interact with unbelievers, there are a couple of things that are true. I think the days might be gone where people feel bad about sleeping in on Sunday morning. I think we're past that. I think we're past the days where people even feel guilty for breaking the law. I think of my neighbor, Adam, he doesn't feel guilty at all. He's always on edibles when I talk to him. He doesn't care. But here's what they can't get out from under. You can't get out from under the shame. It's not going to go away. You can convince yourself that the guilt's not there. You can convince yourself that all the religion, all, that this whole Jesus story is a bunch of nonsense. But you still have to deal with your shame. Because you know at the end of the day when your head hits the pillow, you know that you're not enough. Unless you're a psychopath. You know that you're not enough. You know that there's this nagging longing in the deep recesses of your soul, this nagging prodigal suspicion that you aren't good enough and therefore you can never be naked and not ashamed. And that's why this isn't a verse about how good your body looks in front of the mirror. It's a statement about how your soul looks in front of the perfection of Eden. And you either know it doesn't come close to measuring up or you're a serial killer. Those are your only options. And Jesus says this, you're mine. You're my bride. It's you. You're the one that I'm choosing to marry. You're the one who I'm choosing to give my life for. You're the one that I'm choosing to rise from the dead for. You're the one that I'm choosing to return for. And I'll forgive you. That's what Jesus says about your shame. He's moved it as far as the east is from the west. And he says he will remember it no more. He has forgiven you, meaning he'll never bring it up in conversation meaning he won't lord it over you for six months, meaning he won't blast it on Instagram. I will never hold it against you any longer. And Paul and Moses are saying, let your marriage be that. Let the world see that. Because if they can see that you're capable of loving your spouse when they are your enemy, they'll know there's a God who has loved them when they were his enemy. This is what we mean when we say marriage isn't about you. We live in a world, y'all, that demands atonement at every moment. 
It's so crazy hot politically. It's so crazy hot with opinions. We live in this world that demands atonement. Somebody's got to pay for this. China, you got to pay for COVID if you let it leak from a lab. We got, somebody's got to pay for this. You can't ask me to pay your student loans back. Pay them yourself. We live in this world that demands atonement. Fix it and fix it now and fix it the way that I say. And we live in a world that abhors this idea of forgiveness, but we live in a world that hinges on forgiveness being made available to us. It's hard to live that way. We can only do that because Jesus does. We can only live this way because there is a God who gives us the power to do so. Because he says, I'm the God who meets your needs. And if Jesus is the one who meets our needs, then he says, your spouse is the one who does that for you. Your spouse doesn't have to meet your needs anymore. You're now free to love them because you have one who has met all of your needs. Then he says, until I return or I call you home, then you will have this thing called marriage that shows a watching world that there is a God who has not forgotten his people. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I'll end with a charge. I'll end with a charge to the married folks in the room. Here's the deal. There are single folks in your midst right now who long to have what you have who are dying for it, dying for it. Talk to them all the time. I was single till I was 35, was dying for it because they're not disobedient and they're not crazy. My old boss says they're single for a reason and single for a season and you, you probably need to figure out which one you are. There are folks who are dying to be in the position that you're in. And for some reason, God hasn't given it to them. We don't know why. But we know it's not because of this. It's not because he's holding out on them. It's not because he doesn't love them. They've been told their whole life, if you just, I don't know, go to hot yoga, maybe meet somebody there. I don't know, go to a YP event, maybe you'll meet somebody there. I always say the goods are odd, or the odds are good, but the goods are odd when you go to a church event like that. <laughs> you'll get that, oh, look at that. There it goes, there it goes. Married folks, please hear this. Uh, man, that one lasted. Um, there, there are single folks who would long to have what you have. There are folks who sit among us who are same-sex attracted who long to have what you have. And out of obedience to Jesus, they're not acting upon it. But they would long to be where you are. Open up your home to them. They're not just babysitters. They're not just dog sitters. They're not folks who are going to come by and water your plants. Open your home to them. Have them for dinner. Let them see your house. I don't care how dirty your house is. They're single. It's not dirtier than their house. Have them over to your house. Have them for dinner. Have them in your small groups. Because here's what happens in Christian culture so many times is that married folks just like to huddle together. And they're like, let's figure this out. Like, my husband's mad at me. My wife's mad at me. Of course she is. And she's going to be forever. Like you're not gonna fix it in your holy huddle. Here's what you need to see. Open up your home, let them see the beauty. If this is true, if anything we said is true, 
that if this is a portrait for how God loves you, then what that means is that God sets lonely people in families, like he says in Scripture. Let them in. We can change the culture first of what's said about Midtown 12 South, but also the culture of this town and the culture of the world if we looked at it that way, that your marriage isn't about you. It's about others. It's about a God who loves you. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are so very kind to us uh, in how you have dealt with us, uh, how you have uh, wed yourself um, to a work-covered bride who runs away from you all the time. As we see in the book of Hosea, a wife who is given to whoredom, a wife who is given to selling herself, and you have said, still, I'm coming after you. That when sin and Satan put us on the auction block to sell us into slavery, you come and buy us back. Not with money, but with your blood. Not with money, but with your life. So Jesus, as we continue on in worship, uh, would you show us that? Lord, for our married friends among us, uh, would you heal their marriages? Would you protect them from the evil one? Uh, Would you let them see uh, and remember and proclaim and talk about at lunch uh, the covenants that they made to one another, whether they've been married five minutes or 50 years? Lord, for the single friends among us, Lord, would you give them what they want? Lord, if that's your will, would you give them what they want? Not to meet their needs, uh, but to see that there's a Jesus who cares so deeply about them. Uh, Lord, we need more of it. Uh, We need more of you. Uh, Lord, would you sustain our friends who are struggling? Uh, Would you call us all uh, back to yourself and we would leave here rejoicing uh, because you've done great things. Let's see your name we do pray. Amen.